Welcome to Socialist Revolution Podcast. Today, we're taking a look at the U.S. election results and their implications for the class struggle and the fight for a socialist future. America will never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Trump was defeated in the polls this time, but that doesn't mean that we've seen the end of Trumpism. The country is more polarized than at any other time in living memory, and at the same time, COVID-19 infections are rising uncontrollably, and the crisis of capitalism continues to deepen. So what will the election results mean for the U.S. working class? What should socialists do in the aftermath of the 2020 election? A few weeks ago, we got 600 comrades together for an online Marxist school to take up these questions and more. To start off the weekend, comrades heard from the editor of Socialist Revolution, John Peterson. really fantastic to be here with you all this weekend. Uh, truly gave me a big smile to see all of you as I scrolled through the gallery before we got started. This is going to be an amazing event and we have a lot to talk about. Uh, 2020 has obviously been a hell of a year. An unprecedented series of crises and catastrophes has hammered the inhabitants of the entire planet, both physically and psychologically, and it's had a dramatic effect and an impact on the consciousness of all classes. Now, whether we like it or not, constant instability and uncertainty is the new norm. Trump has yet to formally concede, and he seems hell-bent on doing everything possible to sow chaos and to delegitimize the transition to a Biden presidency. Uh, he aims to present himself as an aggrieved victim of a vast liberal conspiracy. Uh, and this is obviously the best way to launch Trump TV, whatever form that may take. And of course, to set him up for a possible run at the presidency in 2024. Remember, he gets to be in the White House until January 20th of next year. And more than a lame duck, he's a wounded jackal and he can cause a lot more damage. The longer he drags things out, the more he's going to undermine the institutions of bourgeois legality in the eyes of millions of people. Unsurprisingly, the nationally coordinated Stop the Steal campaign is being orchestrated by none other than Roger Stone and Steve Bannon. And these people don't care about the long-term implications of a serious constitutional crisis if it keeps Trump's personal stock afloat. After all, his policy isn't really America first. It's Donald Trump uber alles. Uh, now, after Biden's victory, millions of people understandably do feel as though a long and surreal nightmare has ended. But nearly as many millions of other people feel as though the nightmare is just beginning. And the reality is that the nightmare of capitalism hasn't gone anywhere and it's only going to get worse for all workers, not just in the U.S., but around the world. So the sense of relief is really just a reprieve from execution and a brief one at that. The euphoria and the jubilation won't last because after the party comes the morning after. And believe me, if you thought what followed eight years of Obama was rough, the hangover of the School of the Democrats version 2.0 is going to be even more epic. Even more disappointments are in store. Even if there are some cosmetic adjustments that seem to lighten the chains just a little bit in the short term, the emotional response that we've seen on both sides to this election 
Uh, it's driven by deep anxiety, by fear, depression, illness, debt, unemployment, and desperation for real change for jobs, healthcare, education, safety, and dignity for all. But since the system can't offer any meaningful and lasting solutions, the only choices on the table are liberal and conservative variations on a capitalist theme. As a result of this whipsawing of the population over the last few electoral cycles, the working class is deeply divided along electoral and ideological lines that cut across the class unity that is absolutely necessary if we're going to defeat the capitalist class and its state apparatus. Now, a lot of people don't want to hear or accept these truths. They're just happy that, that Biden is in power. And of course, we have to be sensitive to the ordinary workers and young people who sincerely believe that casting a ballot can bring about real change. But we need to patiently and persistently stay on message and explain the following. Number one, there's no solution to the problems facing the working class within the limits of capitalism. Reforms and reformism don't offer a way forward. Number two, in addition to strong class struggle unions, the working class needs a mass political party of its own. You can't transform a tool designed for the rule of the capitalist class into a tool for defending the interests of the working class. And three, we need to build a strong Marxist revolutionary tendency grounded in Marxist theory, steeled in struggle, and rooted in the workplaces, organizations, and neighborhoods of the working class so we can bring revolutionary socialist ideas into the unions and into a future workers' party. So although Biden's election does represent a nodal point of development, the fundamental contradictions of capitalism and our fundamental tasks remain essentially the same. What has to change is how we apply and explain these ideas to the rapidly changing landscape. So although everyone is pretty much worn out and has election fatigue, the reality is that the 2022 and the 2024 elections have already started and we need to wrap our heads around the last four or five years if we're going to be able to understand what's yet to come. So first, we're going to take a look at Biden's victory and what we can expect from Biden government. Then we'll examine the contradictory class roots of Trumpism. After that, we'll look at the role of the unions and the left in these last elections. And finally, we'll draw some general conclusions and look ahead to our tasks as an organization. Now, although the media is trying to hype it up, Joe Biden won by the narrowest of margins, by basically exactly the same margin as uh, Trump uh, won in 2016. And Biden's program basically boiled down to this. I am not Donald Trump, and I will take the country back to the good old days under Obama. But we have to remember that it was those very same good old days under Obama that laid the basis for Trump in the first place. Now, at 66% or so, turnout was the highest since the elections of 1900. Both candidates brought loads of new and lapsed voters out of the woodwork. Roughly 78 million came out for Biden and nearly 73 million voted for Trump. That's the highest ever turnout for a sitting president. But this still means that roughly 75 to 80 million eligible voters didn't bother voting at all, or they voted for a candidate to the left or the right of the mainstream parties. And of course, millions of other people weren't allowed to vote at all in the first place. Now, the main motivation behind this, this big turnout was anger, hatred, fear, and panic, not true inspiration. Going into the general election, Donald Trump was the most unpopular president in modern times. But we shouldn't forget that Joe Biden came in fourth in the Iowa caucuses and fifth in the New Hampshire primaries just a few months ago. If it weren't for the dirty deal done by all the other Democratic candidates to block Bernie Sanders after Biden won South Carolina, a state he was never going to even come close to winning in the general election, Biden would have been out of the race back in the spring. 
And although Biden won by about 5 million popular votes, exit polls showed that Trump voters were actually more enthusiastic about their candidate than Biden voters were for theirs. And if you look at the down-ballot elections, the Republicans did surprisingly well, all things considered. Trump may have been defeated personally, but Trumpism is alive and kicking. There was no blue wave and no Democratic sweep of Congress. In fact, the Democrats actually lost seats in the House of Representatives, and though they'll still have a small minority, their hopes for eking out a majority in the Senate hang on two runoff elections in the typically Republican-leaning state of Georgia, although Biden did win, uh, win the electoral votes from that state this time around. Now, as a quick aside, uh, you know, since the margins in the Senate are so narrow, let's not forget that when Obama was first elected in 2008, the Democrats had a majority of 59 in the Senate and at one point even had 60, uh, 60 Democratic senators. They controlled the entire government for two years between 2009 and 2011. And what did they do with that majority? Did they deliver on the hope and change that they promised? Absolutely not. They did what they always do. Wall Street's bidding. That and they caved to the pressure of the so-called Tea Party, which, which we can trace you know, Trump's support back to that group. They ended up disappointing millions of people and they laid the basis for the rise of Donald Trump. Now this year, Biden's increased support among black and Latino voters in major urban areas just barely equalized Trump's increased support in more conservative rural areas. What seems to have pushed Biden over the edge is that just enough white affluent suburban voters in traditionally Republican areas who either voted for Trump in 2016 or didn't vote for anyone, they decided to vote for Scranton Joe in 2020. An estimated 93% of Republicans voted for Trump. Some of the 7% that remains probably voted for the Libertarians, but it seems that just enough of them voted for Biden to help tip the balance. Now, like the liberals, these traditional conservatives in, in the suburbs, they can't understand Trump's enduring and widespread appeal. They're put off and embarrassed by his lumpen bourgeois behavior, so they've gravitated towards what's really their natural home, the Democrats. Because although they may differ on this or that culture wars issue, these people have essentially the same incomes, social status, and worldview as so-called centrist Democrats like Joe Biden. And you can bet good money that the Democrats are going to embrace these layers by shifting even further to the right to accommodate them. In the end, though, Trump finally crashed into an institution that he couldn't bend through sheer willpower alone, and that's the entire institution of the electoral system. Try as he made to bully and bluster his way out of the result, the ruling class simply couldn't allow him to underline everything even more than he already has. Now, if the Electoral College or the Supreme Court were to install Trump at this stage of the game, the protests we saw last summer would overflow the banks again on an even higher level and could seriously put the question of the entire system in, uh, in, in question. So that's something they want to avoid. And it's not an accident uh, that a lot of people are seriously talking about civil war and millions of people are, are literally going out and buying guns. Gun sales have gone through the roof in the last period. This is the kind of tension that has accumulated in society. And a simple election is not going to resolve that. So what kind of government can we expect from Joe Biden? The incoming president faces an unprecedented combined health and economic crisis in a bitterly and polarized country. But after four very uncomfortable years, the liberals basically want to go back to normal. They want to go back to brunch, as they say, uh, and they're going to try to paper over the Trump era as if it never happened. They think they can simply waltz back to a multilateral world, that is to say, a world dominated by U.S. imperialism in which regional partners 
help the Americans police the planet on their behalf. They think they can just go back to the toothless Paris Climate Agreement to at least give the illusion that they're doing something about the climate catastrophe. In short, they want to go back to the smiling mask of hypocrisy and alligator tears instead of the more crude but frankly more honest policy of America first and everyone else last. Now, as we've seen, more people than ever voted against the Democrats, and yet Biden and Pelosi claim to have a mandate to establish a government of reconciliation and national unity. Their task is to yet again trick people into believing that what's good for the capitalists is good for everyone else who's forced to live under capitalism. Their game is to blur and smush together contradictory class interests, all in the name of national unity uh, in, a, in a time of major crisis. And this is what FDR did after Pearl Harbor and what George W. Bush did after 9-11. So here's, uh, here's some advice. Whenever you hear a capitalist politician, no matter what party they belong to, talking about healing or unity or representing all Americans or reconciliation, this is all newspeak code for class collaboration, for subordinating the interests of the working class to the interests of the capitalists. But even if this is a message that millions of people want to hear, of course, most people don't want to be tense and fighting all the time. We have to explain that it's simply not possible under class society. You can't mix oil and water. What's good for the bosses is not good for the workers. Now, a majority of the ruling class despises Trump for being such an unpredictable and destabilizing factor. So it's no surprise, I think, that the pre-election polls of the top CEOs and the trail of big money donations showed that Biden was clearly Wall Street's candidate. After his victory was projected, the stock market soared, and the reactionary body known as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce made it crystal clear that they believe Biden is good for business. Now, it's probably just a coincidence, but it's worth pointing out that Wilmington, Delaware, where Biden is based, is known as the corporate capital of the world due to its relatively low tax rates and corporation-friendly court system. Uh, and literally 60% or more of the companies listed on the Fortune 500 are incorporated in that tiny state, including a whole slew of chemical companies. Probably just a coincidence. Um, but Biden's task is to restabilize the system on behalf of the capitalists, starting with the presidency. After the damage that's been done to this institution by Trump's reality show treatment of, this, uh, of the office, there's widespread talk of the need to reconstruct and rehabilitate the, the presidency. As the LA Times put it, with Trump, we lost the democratic system envisioned by our founders. With Biden, we could get it back. Of course, it's just a small detail that the democratic system envisioned by the founders was one in which a handful of lawyers, merchants, and slavers called all the shots. But in a sign of his great magnanimity, Biden has already said he plans on appointing a kinder, gentler, bipartisan candidate that could include Republicans like Mitt Romney. Now, the U.S. government is already a de facto national government, since legislation can pretty much only pass with at least some level of bipartisan support. And there's a revolving door between big business and, and this and that administration, no matter what the party. Uh, and when the, the Democrats are in the minority, they allow quorum, they allow votes to take place, and they often vote with the Republicans. And even when they're in the majority, they use arcane rules like the filibuster as an excuse to justify compromising even further to the right with their colleagues across the aisle. Now, behind the scenes, all these people go to the same cocktail parties, galas, and concerts. Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell are old pals from their decades serving together in the Senate. On the Supreme Court, the late liberal darling Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
was best buds with the late arch reactionary Anthony Scalia. So true to form, the Democrats will ratchet things even further to the right, despite the growing base of left-leaning voters who supported them only because they had no alternative. Now, the DNC obviously feels that since these people have nowhere else to go, they can take them for granted, just as they took blue-collar workers for granted for decades. Now, Abigail Spanberger, a congresswoman who just barely won her race in a conservative-leaning district in Virginia, attacked progressive Democrats for not pushing back harder against accusations of socialism. As she put it, quote, we need to not ever use the word socialist or socialism ever again. Other Democrat, uh, you know, leading Democrats have made similar declarations. Now, to be fair, both Biden and Pelosi have made it abundantly clear that they are ni- that neither they nor the Democratic Party are socialists. But instead of appealing to Trump's working class supporters on a class basis with programs and policies that can meaningfully improve their quality of life, Biden's mushy middle of the ground rhetoric and policies are only going to push millions of angry workers even further to the right while pushing those on the left even further in that direction. And what the tops of the DNC can't understand is that the so-called center has been hollowed out and that only bold rhetoric and policies from either the left or the right can get people's attention. Due to their inherent class blinders, they can't understand that people on both the right and the left of the traditional political spectrum are really searching for a way out on a class basis, whether they're consciously uh, thinking of the world in class terms or not. And of course, most people at this stage do not. Nonetheless, we should never say never when it comes to whether or not Biden may pass this or that cosmetic reform, as long as it doesn't fundamentally threaten the interests of capitalism as a whole. As we've seen before in history, sometimes one or another section of the capitalist has to be reined in or trimmed back to save the system as a whole or to stave off uh, social unrest and revolution. So despite the limited room he has for maneuver and his commitment to slow, gradual, incremental crisis, due to the severity of the crisis, Biden may, may be forced to do more. Uh, you know, he wants, to, he wants to introduce slow, incremental progress, but he may not be able to do that. He may have to be more uh, do more and more quickly than even he himself expects. But I think we can be sure of one thing. Nothing he does will fundamentally change the exploitative and oppressive nature of capitalism. So even if shoot him in the lake Joe has to some short-term supports for the poor, the unemployed, and small businesses, the main thrust of his policies is going to be to prop up Wall Street. One way or another, the working class is eventually going to be made to pay for this crisis, either through direct or indirect austerity, inflationary pressure on wages, or some other combination. Now, in reality, the push for a national unity government is a sign of weakness, not of strength. It's a sign of unease, not of confidence. Unable to rule in the old way, the ruling class is also deeply divided and unsure how best to tackle the many crises they face. Now, the smartest ones among them are fully conscious that they're sitting on a ticking time bomb of the enraged working class. Last summer's protests struck the fear of God into these pious people, and they're deeply worried that the protests are going to come roaring back, and they will come roaring back at a certain stage. So one big question going into the elections was the following. Was Trump's election a one-off aberration, or does it signify? something deeper. In short, would his base uh, or the, and the broader Republican Party abandon him eventually? Well, the answer was clearly a resounding no in these elections, which indicates that it does represent a more substantive shift. So we need to analyze the nature of Trump's base of support. Now, without a doubt, among his supporters are the scum of American society, the unapologetic racists, white supremacists, 
KKK members, and so on. Uh, these elements are being whipped into a frenzy and they're standing by to be mobilized as an ideological and physical battering ram against the left and the workers at a certain stage. But it's not only the enraged petty bourgeoisie and declassed elements that support him. As we've seen, his base also includes millions of angry and distressed workers. As we've explained time and again, the lack of a viable mass working class political party in this country is an objective factor of enormous importance with huge bearing on the subjective outlook of the working class. As a result, the extreme polarization of society, which is at root a class polarization, is expressed in a deformed and distorted way refracted through the prism of the two main capitalist parties. Now, in a society dominated by black or white empiricism and pragmatism, most people tend to accept that their choices are limited to this one or that one, the Democrat or Republican, chocolate or vanilla. It doesn't occur to them that perhaps strawberry or pineapple or maybe rum raisin might even be possible. But after eating only chocolate or vanilla or chocolate vanilla twist for decades, people are fed up and they're looking for something entirely different. This back and forth ping pong of the two-party system can't go on forever and it's coming under extreme pressure. Now the two-party system in this country has gone through many iterations since the early 19th century, often with the same names being recycled, but the classes or layers of classes represented by these parties shifting over the decades. As we all know, the Republicans were once the party of Lincoln, the Civil War, and the revolutionary expropriation of four million slaves, and the Democrats were once the party of Jefferson Davis and the Confederate slaveocracy. For decades, though, uh, due to presidents like FDR and Lyndon Johnson, the Democrats were assumed to be the more worker-friendly party or the lesser evil. But millions of workers have now clearly shifted, shifted their political allegiance. This change burst to the surface in 2016, baffling the pundits and the prognosticators. But now, after the 2020 elections, this process has crystallized even further, and I think it's plain to see. Trump's deep reserves of support seem to be a kind of dark matter for the pollsters. Though I don't believe in the existence of dark matter, for them, his appeal is a kind of uh, mysterious, imperceptible mass that has a powerful gravitational effect on objects around him. Due to their liberal prejudices, they just can't understand the simple fact that this mysterious force is raw, unfocused, working-class anger. And although he's a bourgeois himself, Trump has successfully tapped into this anger, and the Republican Party is now beholden to him because by harnessing that anger, he's given that party another lease on life. After decades of failures and betrayals, failures and betrayals that are rooted in the class nature of the Democratic Party, that party finally lost its grip on a layer of workers that they could more or less take for granted in the past, the unionized white working class, and above all, the Rust Belt and rural unionized white working class. Now, obviously, not all white workers and not all white union workers and not all rural workers support Trump, but exit polls by the New York Times seem to indicate that 40% of union households voted for Trump. Sure, 57% voted for Biden, but once upon a time, uh, you know, the unions were basically a, a solid Democratic voting bloc. The union leaders were in the pockets of the Democrats, and they mobilized their members to door knock and vote for that party. Many unions still do but it's not so clear cut anymore. Those in the service and public sector unions still tend to vote Democrat, while in many industrial unions, and of course the police unions, uh, there's overwhelming support for Trump. So now, in addition to the unholy alliance of the workers with the Democrats, we have to contend with the unholy alliance of another layer of workers with the Republicans. Now, many on the left, and of course around the world, 
see this as proof that American workers are incorrigibly right-wing and reactionary and that a socialist revolution in the U.S. is ruled out. Uh, and it's true that politically, these workers have shifted further to the right, but that's only because there's only right-wing political options available. We have to remember that their support for Trump is for precisely the same reason that many of these same workers supported Obama and the Democrats in the past. And that's the lack of a viable class independent alternative. It was only after the failure of the so-called left boot of, of capitalism that they decided to give the right boot a chance. At root, their anger and frustration at the liberal elite is a distorted class anger, which is being cynically manipulated by Trump and the Republicans. Trump was pretty lucky when it came to the economy for most of his term, and this gave him a lot of credibility among workers. His emphasis on reopening the economy and getting people back to work no matter what the risk resonated with millions of people living paycheck to paycheck. This is a very pragmatic layer of the population. In their minds, they couldn't afford to vote against Trump just because he said some nasty things about women or immigrants. They need the work. With no more stimulus checks coming, uh, at least for now, and no enhanced unemployment benefits, and for millions of people, no access to unemployment benefits at all, it's do or die, or literally work or have your family go hungry and, and homeless. Now, Trump successfully painted the Democrats as a bunch of liberals who could wait out the pandemic in their marble bathtubs and island getaways while everyone else is out there risking their lives, hustling to survive and to make ends meet. So when workers in the coal and rust belt hear the words Green New Deal, all they hear is you're about to have your livelihood and even your identity ripped away from you once again by the liberals with nothing to replace it. But when they hear things like Make America Great Again, they don't think of chauvinist nationalism and imperialism. They sincerely believe that Trump is going to bring back the quality jobs that allowed their parents and grandparents to have a relatively decent life, at least within the limits of capitalism, during the post-war boom. Of course, you can't simply will the 1950s back into existence. There were many political and economic factors that made that uh, possible, uh, and not everyone benefited. But that message resonates with millions of workers in places where being a manager at Walmart or McDonald's or maybe joining the military is the best you can aspire to, and where entire cities have been stamped into the mud by capitalist globalization and outsourcing, replaced only with the humiliation of widespread unemployment, not to mention the opioid, obesity, and mental health epidemics. So Trump has unapologetically promised to fight and to humiliate those people who brought this upon them. And he promises that if they vote for him, their wildest dreams will come true. And this is why his rallies are reminiscent of a Christian revivalist meeting. So when Trump says that, quote, the Republicans have become the party of the American worker, and that's what's happened, he shows that he understands the class dynamics of this country far better than the liberals, although he obviously overstates the case. It's a contradictory phenomenon because on the one hand, he attacks the status quo while also promising to maintain the status quo or at least to return to a recent status quo, one in which white industrial workers were given a few more crumbs to get them to buy into the concept of partnership with the bosses. Now, the conservatism of rich people stems from a desire to keep a firm grip on their property. But the conservatism of many ordinary people is a function of scarcity and of crisis in the system. All these people, tens of millions of them who live paycheck to paycheck, worry about the next rent payment or whether they're going to they're have enough food to feed their kids. This gives them tunnel vision and makes them receptive to the messianic message of someone like Trump, who leans on fear, racism, and xenophobia to whip them up behind them. Scapegoating 
And blaming other layers of the working class for the crisis is a classic divide and rule tactic intended to divert attention from the class enemy. And people are susceptible to this when there's scarcity and competition over jobs, housing, and so on. Millions of workers are plenty familiar with what Clintons, uh, what the Clintons and the Bidens have to offer on the Democratic side. So they were willing to give Trump's incarnation of the Republican Party a chance. Never mind that the lunatics have taken over the asylum. People want something different. And this is definitely not the same old, same old. Of course, people like Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, Roger Stone, and Steve Bannon, they couldn't give a rat's ass about the working class. In fact, they disdain them as much as the liberals do, but they have no qualms about using them as pawns to achieve their political aims. But like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, these people may well unleash forces they can't fully control. Eventually, these workers will realize that the Republicans are also part and parcel of the status quo, that they've been mocking them behind their backs and taking them for granted. And just as these players were ultimately disappointed with the Democrats, in the long run, they'll be deeply disappointed in the Republicans, because neither party has a solution to the crisis of capitalism. So once every, these people realize that it's all been yet another lie and a swindle, they're going to turn angrily against them as well. Now, that's not likely to happen unless and until there's a viable working class alternative to show them a class independent way forward. Most of them, though, aren't going to swing back to the Democrats, or at least not for long. And uh, a lot of them may just fall into political apathy or even look to alternatives further to the right. It's worth noting that while parties to the left of the Democrats had only a negligible impact this year, the Libertarian Party uh, is being accused of playing spoiler for the Republicans from the right. So people are looking for answers. They're looking for a way out of the impasse. And above all, they're looking for a fighting leadership. Trump is a piece of human garbage and an enemy of the working class, but he's a fighter. And that's a lot more than the union leaders or the liberals can offer. So if we're going to fight Trumpism, we have to be able to understand it and explain it. We have to expose it for what it is. Get another cross-class alliance in which one sector of the ruling class is leaning on a sector of the working class to further its interests. There's a reason our program, the program of the U.S. section of the IMT, says break with the Democrats and Republicans. It's not just break with the Democrats. We've long understood the contradictory way class anger is expressed in, in a country without a mass labor party. But the way this is being channeled through the Republicans now is much stronger and much clearer than it was just a couple of electoral cycles ago. So we have to be able to separate the rational from the irrational in the Trump phenomenon. And there's a lot that's irrational, perhaps most of it. But buried in there is a little tiny kernel of Bolshevism, not ideologically, but in its fundamental class essence. Just to give one example, a referendum to phase in a $15 minimum wage in Florida passed with 60% of the vote. Now, this is in a state where around 51% voted for Trump. So all things being equal, roughly 10% of Trump voters voted in favor of what is clearly a class question, raising the minimum wage. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be trying to win these people now. The vast majority of them aren't going to be one to a small group, and there's certainly not going to be one to a small socialist group. But they will join a viable working class party with policies that appeal to their pragmatism, even if they are objectively socialist demands. Now, eventually, the magnet of class struggle as it develops in this country will draw all the iron filings out from the different swamps and dung heaps they're currently buried in and bring large numbers of them together in collective struggle against our collective enemies. We sometimes say that there's two Americas, uh, the rich America and the poor America. And this is fundamentally correct. Class is the fundamental dividing line. But this is a particularly complicated and messy country. And there are really many overlapping Americas. 
Remember, as Marx explained, class contradictions are manifested not only vertically between classes with opposing interests, but also horizontally within classes themselves, both within the ruling class and within the working class. Now, Mitch McConnell and the other Republicans' refusal to accept Biden's victory and to initiate a smooth transition is just the latest example of the crisis of the regime of capitalist rule, disagreements between the, the ruling class uh, themselves. Now, in a, so in a certain sense, Trump is right. The election is not over yet because the fate of Trumpism is far from being decided. As I said, the next elections are already underway and the Republican leaders know that they're still enthralled to Trump and his magic wand. Trump's going to be launching a new leadership PAC, uh, which can accept unlimited donations as well as donations from other PACs. And it's going to be used as a battering ram, not only against Democrats, but also against any Republicans that don't get in the line. According to Matt Gorman, a Republican strategist, President Trump is not going anywhere anytime soon. He's going to insert himself in the national debate in a way that's unlike any of his predecessors. Now, before the election, Trump told advisors, sometimes joking and sometimes not, that he might run again in 2024 if he lost. We'll have to see how he navigates the many legal troubles that await him once he's a private citizen. But if not Trump himself in 2024, then maybe one of his sons, or perhaps Tucker Carlson, or maybe even Mike Pompeo. Because remember, if you limit yourself to voting for the lesser evil, and you don't build a mass alternative independent of the Democrats, eventually the so-called greater evil will be back greater and eviler than ever. So even a small decline in votes for Biden, assuming he's fit enough to run again, could spell disaster for the short-sighted Democrats uh, and the left who support the Democrats if Trump's base is kept fired up and ready for another crack at the presidency. So this brings us to the role played by the labor leaders and the left in this election. We have to start by reiterating that the blame for the divisions tearing apart the working class lay with the labor leaders. The unions have spent billions of their members' dollars over the years supporting the Democrats. SEIU alone pledged to spend $150 million this cycle to elect Biden. And for what? They stand at the head of millions of organized workers in dozens of essential industries. They have the power not only to shut down the economy, but to mobilize their members and resources behind an effort to build a new party on a working class basis. Instead, they collaborate, conciliate, and compromise with the bosses at the workplace which means worsening wages, conditions, and benefits. And politically, they cling to the coattails of the Democrats, and in some cases, the Republicans. After Trump was elected, they either cowered before him and did nothing to mobilize opposition on the streets or through strikes, or they went to actually meet him at the White House for handshakes and photo ops. So it's no surprise they've lost a lot of their influence over the rank and file. This lack of a fighting class-independent leadership has left a vacuum that Trump and his cronies have cynically identified and filled. As a result, the class consciousness of union workers, which was far more evident in, in, in the past, has been muddled and distorted by these, as well as other economic and demographic factors. Here's just one example of how muddied the waters of class consciousness have become. On the eve of the election, some unions discussed the possibility of organizing a general strike if Trump refused to recognize a Biden victory. In other words, they were prepared to strike to put a capitalist politician in office. On the other side of the divide, a coalition of truck drivers is at this very moment considering a strike against Biden and the Green New Deal to, quote, show America who runs the country. To be sure, many truckers are independent operators and they have more of a petty bourgeois outlook, but this illustrates the madness of division. 
workers divided over which bourgeois candidate to back with not a shred of progressive class content on either side. How does any of this further the cause of forging working class unity, confidence, and confidence? The answer is it doesn't. It's going to take some time and a lot of hard experience to untangle all of this, but we should be confident that eventually the class question will come to the fore. The role of the working class and its mass organizations is fundamental for the socialist transformation of society, not for sentimental reasons, but due to the workers' role and position in society. As for the left, most of it caved to the pressure and stampeded to support the alleged lesser evil, either directly with a wink and a nod or strategically with the politically impotent safe state strategy. All of this only served to sow illusions in the Democrats as a potential vehicle for real change. Now, the dictionary definition of strategy is, quote, a plan, method, or series of maneuvers or stratagems for obtaining a specific goal or result. These people don't have a long-term strategy plan or method, at least not one rooted in a class analysis of society. For them, an incoherent series of impressionistic, often panic reactions to external stimuli is considered a strategy. The specific goal or result of their series of maneuvers and stratagems was to convince workers that they should elect yet another staunch defender of capitalism. With millions of other workers voting for Trump, I again ask, in what way does supporting the Democrats increase working class consciousness, confidence, and unity? This was a complete abdication of responsibility, the responsibility to patiently yet clearly explain the real class relations in society. The role of genuine socialists is not to give left cover to the capitalists' oldest party, but to help the working class overthrow and replace it. And just imagine what these people, what, you know, what would happen to these people if Biden had lost and looked on election night as if that was uh, what was going to happen. The reality is, for all the efforts of the left to go out and, and win one for win one for Joe, the, uh, the reality is that Cindy McCain in Arizona, for example, the widow of right-wing Republican John McCain, she brought more votes for the Democrats than the entire left did in Arizona. These are the kinds of class enemy bedfellows you find yourself with when you play the game of lesser evilism. So-called Trotskyists on the same side as Cindy and John McCain. So let's be blunt. All those who called for a vote for Biden in any way, shape, or form are complicit and have to take responsibility for whatever comes during his administration. These people don't even have a rudimentary understanding of the class struggle, of basic Marxism, and certainly no inkling of dialectics. And yet they accuse us of being unrealistic when they're the ones with illusions that capitalism can be reformed and that its existing parties and institutions can somehow be made to serve another class master. Now, the root of their cowardice, frankly, is that they have no confidence in the working class and have no coherent ideology to guide them. We, on the other hand, understand that the colossal power of the working class is ultimately on our side of history, and we are armed with ideas and a method that allows us to cut through the fog and confusion and to keep our eye on the big picture and the long view of history at all times. This isn't to say that our strategy will be easy to achieve, but at least it's based on the scientific analysis of how society and history move and how real fundamental change can actually happen. Now, to cover their backsides, many of them raised the specter of fascism to justify their capitulation. They argued that this time it really is different, and the only way to stop fascism is to vote for Biden. But let me ask you, if Trump really had the power to impose a military dictatorship, which would mean calling out the regular military and hordes of paramilitary gangs to terrorize and occupy every major city in the country, 
on what planet would mailing in a ballot to vote for his opponent stop him from doing that if he had that power? Just ask the German, Italian, or Spanish working class whether voting for liberal conciliationists was enough to stop the imposition of their dictatorships. To stop the imposition of such a regime, if it were really imminent, we would need mass mobilizations on a class basis and an all-out economic and political general strike which would pose the question of economic and political power. Instead, these so-called lefts urge people to just cast a ballot for Biden. Now, as we saw last summer, the real class balance of forces is such that it's not as simple as imposing a dictatorship from above. The ruling class was and is and would be deeply divided over any move to call the military out against the population because the smarter ones among them know that it could backfire royally and they could lose control altogether. So now that Biden is all but guaranteed to take over the reins, how does the left plan to quote, put his feet to the fire or hold him accountable or push him to the left? We have to be clear, the Democrats are not an empty vessel to be filled with a different class content through pressure. They are filled to the brim with capitalist content, and while they can change their outer form to give the impression of change, the core content remains. Biden was always going to rule from the center, as they call it, that is to say, from the right. As we've seen, they're on track to move even further to the right. So I think AOC said it best, or she put the perspective of these people best, when she said that it would be, quote, a privilege to lobby Biden as president. So to get a few progressive crumbs, all we need to do is lobby the president. However, as she put it, the party has been extremely hostile to anything that even smells progressive. So even she seems to be sensing that the Democrats are a dead end. But instead of putting her considerable popularity into building something new to challenge them, she says she's considering leaving politics altogether. The reality is that far from pushing the Democrats to the left, she's been sucked ever further to the right. And the same will happen to every single self-declared socialist who tries to change that party from within. As everyone knows, when you gamble, the House always wins in the long run and usually also in the short run. If you play by the rules of the House, you leave the cards in the House's hands, then the odds are inevitably stacked against you. If we want real change, we can't accept the rigged parameters that they set. On the contrary, we need to reject their house and their game altogether. As for Bernie Sanders, after capitulating twice to the party tops, he's now proposing himself for Secretary of Labor. This is what socialists getting a seat at the table looks like in practice. Sure, he would probably be more friendly to unions and to unionization campaigns than his predecessor, but he would serve at the pleasure of Scranton Joe, who would be part of an unelected national unity cabinet approved by the reactionary Senate possibly including people like Mitt Romney and Pete Buttigieg. Now, Bernie almost single-handedly put socialism on the map, and he raised the hopes of millions that an entirely new direction for this country was possible. In 2016 and again in 2020, he was in a position to blow the two-party system out of the water if he'd made an independent presidential bid either before or after he was outmaneuvered by the DNC. Even Trump had to treat him with kid gloves in 2016 because they were both appealing to the disgruntled layers of the working class. But Bernie has probably shot his credibility completely, not only with the left, but also with those Trump voters who appreciated his combative class rhetoric in 2016. Now he's seen by millions of people as just another liberal with a thin veneer of socialism, which I think actually hurts the cause of socialism more than it helps it. Now, another candidate for Secretary of Labor is Sarah Nelson of the Flight Attendants Union. And the quickest way to snuff out a potential rival or threat 
is to co-op them. And this is precisely what Joe Biden is planning on doing. He's a master of playing the Game of Thrones of the Washington swamp. So look, millions of people have honest illusions that you can reform the police somehow or that a Green New Deal can stop the climate catastrophe. Their first instinct is to try to find a solution within the system through the parties and leaders they're familiar with. This is totally normal and it's a natural part of the process of developing class consciousness. Our task though is to outline the deeper issues and contradictions involved and to explain that to end a systemic crisis, we need systemic change altogether. But fortunately, neither conservatism nor liberalism are incurable afflictions. Most people, as we said, aren't even aware that there's an alternative that goes beyond the current system. So we have to differentiate between those with honest and unconscious confusions and those who are conscious ideologues of liberalism, along with their petty bourgeois counterparts who infest the labor movement and the left with their alien class ideas and try to cut across working class unity by introducing all sorts of, of garbage. Now, as we've seen, the potential for a new party is absolutely colossal. Millions of people voted against Trump, not for Biden. Millions of other people voted for Trump because they saw that as a vote for jobs or better wages and so on, not necessarily as a vote for Trump and everything he represents. Tens of millions of other people, despite the stakes this year, didn't bother voting at all, and millions more can't vote at all, as, as we've seen. Uh, and roughly half of Americans, and the big majority among the youth, say they would vote for a socialist president or party. Now, all of this is the objective basis for a new majority party, a party of, by, and for the working class, a mass socialist party based on the unions. The workers are the majority of society, and after trying different ways to bring about change through existing parties, they're eventually going to be forced to take up the task of building something of their own. After all, if this is supposed to be a democracy, then the majority should really rule, and that should begin with having a party for that majority. And we don't know the exact combination of forces or what form or what timing such a party will take, but we have absolute confidence in the working class. And we know that once they decide upon this course, it will be taken up with energy and enthusiasm. The path to running to building such a party is probably going to begin with running independent candidates. Uh, so we have to keep an eye on things like the movement for a people's party. But the bottom line is it's going to take a lot of hard work. There's going to be a lot of obstacles to building something outside the Democrats. But contrary to what the folks at Jacobin say, this is not impossible. And more to the point, it's absolutely essential. If you give up on building something outside the Democrats, you've given up on the idea of socialism altogether. Now, at the same time, we shouldn't conflate the conclusions that we've drawn with the conclusions that the broader masses have drawn. We're still a tiny minority, and there's still a lot of patient explaining for us to do. To be sure, confidence in the system's institution is being steadily eroded. People are getting walloped one way and then the other by the, by the crisis of the system. But they are still, they, you know, a lot of people still do have some significant illusions and above all hope that there's a relatively easy way out of the crisis. People want to believe that if you just elect some decent people, everything will get better. Uh, so the idea that to defend their own interests, the workers are going to have to take things into their own hands as a class has not yet reached a critical mass. In such a volatile period, though, such leaps in consciousness can come far sooner than anyone expects. So we shouldn't be taken by surprise, but at the same time, we shouldn't mistake the first month of pre-revolutionary pregnancy with the ninth. I think the key takeaway from all of this is that the fuse has been lit and we don't have all the time in the world before the revolutionary explosion, and we don't know how long it's gonna take for that fuse to burn. As we said before, 
The period we're living in now, it's more like the pre-Civil War 1850s than the post-war 1950s. Now, this election has been a massive, uh, massive stress for a lot of people, but above all, it's been a massive stress test for the system. It just barely squeaked by this time, or at least so far it has, but even bigger stresses are coming, and eventually the system will not only shudder and shake under the strain, but break apart altogether. Eventually, everything turns into its opposite, and especially in periods of transition between one mode of production and another, instability and uncertainty are the norm. But most people tend to have very short political memories. Whenever the short of the so-called lesser evil gets back into power, people are so exhausted by getting them there that they often let their guard down, thinking that they can go back to normal life. The honeymoon period comes and goes, and then a few years later, they're shocked and surprised when something even worse gets back into power. But as Trotsky explains, quote, the Marxists, especially those claiming the right to leadership, must be capable, not of astonishment, but of foresight. So we shouldn't be shocked and surprised if Trump or someone even more reactionary is back in the White House in a few years. We can say exactly what's coming if the working class doesn't build a mass political alternative in the next period. So we can't let our guard down. The Marxist tendency represents the historical memory of the working class. We must learn and transmit the lessons of the international class struggle to the American working class and apply these lessons with dialectical nuance to the concrete conditions we're living in and working in today. The Republicans and Democrats are two sides of the same capitalist coin. We don't accept that they are polar opposites. The only polarization we encourage, applaud, and push for is class polarization, which is a very healthy kind of polarization, and it's the only way forward for the whole of humanity. So yes, we must follow the twists and turns of the interruling class conflicts at the top, and the effects of all this on the consciousness of the workers. But let's not get caught up in bourgeois electoralism and miss the forest for the trees. We need to separate out the noise and focus on the essential dynamics playing out around us. For Marxists, there's a lot more to politics than bourgeois elections. Voting once every few years is not enough to change society. All fundamental problems are ultimately decided in struggle, in the workplaces, in the streets, the barracks, and not simply at the ballot box. As Lenin famously explained, Politics is concentrated economics. It's the generalized struggle for better wages and conditions. It's the struggle to change the fundamental economic relations of society. More and more people are losing confidence in bourgeois politics and drawing the conclusion that democracy is dead. That is to say, the bourgeois illusion of democracy. What we need to explain is that the choice before us isn't simply bourgeois representative democracy versus bourgeois despotism, a higher form of democracy is not only possible, but necessary, and that's working class democracy. As revolutionary Marxists, we fight not only for different political parties, but for a different type of politics altogether, for class politics. We fight for workers' democracy and a workers' government. We fight for a world in which the working class calls the shots as a step towards the dissolution of classes and class conflict altogether on an international scale. People are blocked at the polls from achieving even modest reforms. The struggle is inevitably going to be channeled onto the streets and into the workplaces. But even that's not going to be enough. Eventually, economic and political struggle will have to be combined with class struggle unions and a mass workers party fighting in concert against the bosses and their parties. A genuine workers party and a workers government can win a lot of these workers on a class basis. Socialism indeed as a class policy will cut across the divide and rule tactics of the ruling class. But liberalism masquerading as socialism, 
that's not going to win anybody over. This crisis isn't going anywhere, comrades. Biden has inherited a hell of a mess. The second wave of COVID is overwhelming hospitals again. And more than half a million new infections were recorded in just the last few days. And now the Federal Reserve says that the economy will never be the same. I think we could have told them that ourselves. But let's not forget a really important fact. Fully 10% of Americans hit the streets this last summer in the middle of a pandemic to protest the police murder of George Floyd. That's an extraordinary development and full of revolutionary implications for the future. Lincoln once famously said that you can't, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. We would add to that that you can physically repress all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't physically repress all the people all the time. We have to be prepared for sharp and sudden changes, comrades, for accidental events, for accidental figures, for accidental movements. We live in a contradictory and bewildering society, and it's not, it shouldn't surprise us that there's so much confusion within the working class and also on the left. But at the same time, the class struggle isn't rocket science. The fundamentals are pretty straightforward, and if we stick to those fundamentals, we won't go too far wrong. And it all starts with an understanding that the interests of the workers and of the capitalists are diametrically opposed, and that class independence must be maintained and fought for at all times. Having achieved this clarity, our immediate task is to connect with the advanced layers, to win the ones and twos to Marxism and the IMT, and to agitate for a break with the bosses' parties and the building of a mass working class socialist party. We said it in 2016, and we say it again, only socialism beats Trump. Now, Trump may have been beaten at the polls this time around, but Trumpism and the system he and the Democrats defend are far from finished. Luckily for us, history is not only accelerating, it's on our side. As we said, eventually a critical mass will be reached, a tipping point will be reached, and the many crises of capitalism, of its economy, of its health system, of its political regime, they're all trending in the same direction, and that's towards the American Socialist Revolution. That's the perspective that the IMT is preparing for. Thank you, comrades. Thanks for listening to Socialist Revolution Podcast. In the coming days, we'll be publishing the remaining sessions from our recent National Marxist School, so make sure that you stay tuned for that. Please uh, share the podcast with your friends, your family, on social media. Make sure you click the subscribe button, give it a five-star rating. And if you liked what you heard, why not reach out and get involved? You can visit socialistrevolution.org to find out more. Uh, you'll find links to subscribe to our magazine, to donate, and why not to join us in the fight for socialism in our lifetime. <laughs>